No one is the same after they've lost a child. Some people can't recover at all. And you really have to decide whether you want to return to life or not, or whether you want to stay in the burial ground, metaphorically speaking. I don't blame people who can't get out of the burial ground. I decided that I wanted to live and that I would keep Gabriel with me and I would keep him alive and it would be a tremendous part of me, but I wasn't going to just die right then. Edward Hirsch, welcome to Exit Strategy. It is a true privilege to have you here. I am most appreciative of your time. Thanks, Stephanie. Glad to be with you. There are so many portals into your life and into your contributions. I'm just going to name a few. You are a prolific and acclaimed poet, an author, a critic, a recipient of the American Academy of Arts and Letters Award for Literature, a MacArthur Genius Fellowship, and a Guggenheim Fellowship in Poetry. Since 2002, you've served as president of the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation. I could go on and on, but I will put the rest of your bio in our show notes and begin a conversation with you. As you know, one of our niches here on the podcast is to share and to learn from stories of grief. And in 2014, you published Gabriel, a poem. It's a slim book length elegy in which you remember your son Gabriel and confront his sudden death, which took place in 2011 when he was just 22. It is raw. The New Yorker has called it a masterpiece of sorrow. So I would greatly appreciate if you would give us a glimpse into Gabriel, who he was, his aspirations, his personality, and of course, would love to know about your relationship with him. The parts of my book about Gabriel that I like the most are the parts that capture his personality. And I think that he comes through in life, not just in death. And I worked really hard to sort of bring him alive on the page. He was very turbulent as a person, extremely impulsive, troubled, funny, neurologically challenged, I would say. We never had a good diagnosis. He was never comfortable in the, in the world. He was an impractical person. One of my friends called him a clown of God. He wasn't made for a world with paychecks and bank accounts. He couldn't handle practical life in any way. He never grew into it. It's possible that if he had lived, he would have matured somewhat, but it's hard to say. He was very emotionally slow, I'd say, developmentally slow. As a person, very quick-witted, but there was a huge age gap between his maturity level and his age. And if he had lived, he probably would have caught up somewhat, but he didn't live long enough for that to happen. Thank you for sharing a bit of who he was. Was it always apparent that you would turn to poetry to navigate through your grief? How did you resolve that that was the manifestation of your process? It was not inevitable, and it was not initial. 
Gabriel had been kind of off limits for my poetry. I have a theory, which is that your parents brought you in, into it, and so you get what they deserve. <laughs> and so <laughs> they're fair game for poetry. Right. Your children, not so much. Gabriel only appeared occasionally in my poems, and it was pretty much off limits. When he died so suddenly, I, I couldn't really function. I tried to go back to work, but I couldn't manage it. I took a leave of absence from my job and went down to Atlanta to be with my partner. I've always been a person who works hard, and I was really at a loss, but I could not work. I decided that I would write a biography of Gabriel in prose just to get it straight in my mind. Also, I needed to do something every day. I didn't know what to do. I was really not functioning. It all was a blur to me. I went to a coffee shop every day and I wrote a prose document, which was basically recording Gabriel's life. I kind of stayed out of it. It was really like what schools he went to, what medications he took. I spoke to my ex-wife almost every day. I talked to my sisters. I talked to Lori, my partner, mm -hmm. um, obsessively. I talked to Gabriel's friends. And I tried to put it in some kind of order for myself what had happened. I had, after four or five months or so, I had a document of 150 pages in prose. I showed it to Lori, and she's an extremely frank person. And she said, I really don't know what you're asking me, but you're not a memoirist, dude. You've left yourself out of this book. And this isn't a book, it's a document. But I wouldn't be opposed to your writing some poems from out of this material. So I went, came back to New York and started my job again. I stopped doing all public events, podcasts or appearances entirely for almost a year. I really didn't know quite what to do with myself. And I started to write some poems based on my document because I had the data. I don't know how to explain this, but in all my books, I'd had elegies next to love poems, next to observations about the city or political poems or poems questioning God, history poems. It didn't bother me to have elegies about people next to other kinds of poems in a book. The idea of doing that with Gabriel made me a little sick. Mm. It was too important. And so I decided that either I would try and do something large and go all out or I'd let it go. I gradually began to get the idea of how to write a book-length poem, and that's sort of how it evolved. I had all the data already in this prose document, so I had the facts straight. I decided that what I really needed to write a book would be to write my own book, which was a father's book, not a book from Gabriel's point of view, not a book from my ex-wife's point of view, but a book from my point of view as a father. And it really is a father's testament. It doesn't pretend to be anything other than that. And it's interesting how your partner, Lori, suggested that you needed to bring yourself into the book, into the writing, and that's what you did. And that resonates, that comes across very clearly. And that, to me as a parent, was one of the most powerful aspects of the writing. It's telling Gabriel's story and my story with Gabriel, but from my point of view, and once I put myself in, it began to lift off. Would you say that poetry and grief are compatible? There's never been a culture without poetry. Poetry is not just something that some oddballs or bohemians happen to like. 
in a culture. There hasn't been a culture without it. That makes me think that it carries a way of thinking that's important that you can't get elsewhere because poetry can be difficult. So if you can get the news elsewhere from, say, TV or podcasts or songs or whatever, you would get it. You wouldn't need poetry. Poetry, though a minority art, continues to hang on because it carries certain kinds of information. And in every culture where there is poetry, which is every culture, two factors are present in every single poetry. One is the poetry of praise, and the other is the poetry of lamentation. They are sides of the same thing. The poetry of praise is one's joy, our joy, individually, collectively, at being in a world that's fleeting. The poetry of lamentation is the unbearable fact of our mortality, that there's something we can't stand about it. And the idea of either easing the passage of the dead or writing about people we've lost, or the unbearable fact that we lose people we love is a receptacle for poetry. Poetry is a place for that. I should say that I think poetry is about as good as anything at grief and writing about loss, but it does not replace the people who are gone. Of course. It's a poor substitute. Nothing brings back the people that you love. Poetry does it about as well as anything, music can too. There are moments in hymns and in prayers that do something of the same. It's still nonetheless a kind of language that tries to respond and compensate for something that can't be retrieved. What can we express through poetry that we can't really express through prose? Is there a difference there? There's been a lot of attempts to distinguish poetry and prose. None of them hold up ultimately because there's a very thin membrane between them. I mean, there's certain kinds of prose. There's a very clear distinction between, say, newspaper stories and lyric poetry. There are such things as prose poems, and there are moments where prose is very lyrical, and there are moments where poetry is very flat. So I don't think we should spend a tremendous amount of time distinguishing between these genres. Poetry gives us a kind of emotional presence and emotional intensity that's very hard to get in, say, a novel. A novel does something else. It's social. It gives you a kind of texture of ordinary life and what it's like to be in a particular place. Poetry gives you a sense of what it felt like. It gives you an emotional record of not just the facts, but what it felt like to be here. Gabriel did not affect very many people in this world. He left a very small footprint, but he had a tremendous impact on me. And I could not bear that he would be forgotten. Mm -hmm. It was overwhelming to me. I really did my best to try and remember and memorialize him. And I felt that prose I wrote was a kind of document that will tell you about him but the poetry captures what he was like and what I felt like responding to what he was like. And I tried to come up with a poetic form that responded to the kind of person he was. Instead of trying to make Gabriel like traditional poetry, I decided that what I should do was try and make poetry like Gabriel and his friends. 
and I hadn't found poems with these kinds of kids in them. We all know troubled teenagers who are wild, but you don't find them much in poetry. That was exciting for me to try and find an idiom and a language that captured what Gabriel was really like. And that's how I hit upon the idea of an unpunctuated poem that was in three-line stanzas and that there would be 10 three-line stanzas per section and that this would enable me to pivot very quickly from one section to the next to capture something of what he was like. What would you expect anyone who reads and processes Gabriel a poem to extract in terms of their own life experiences and losses for that matter? I mean, is there universality about what you express? The whole time I was writing Gabriel, I was worrying about a problem, which is I want to be true to my own story and to Gabriel's story, but I don't want to suggest that I'm the only one that this has ever happened to. I mean, not everyone loses a child, but everyone loses someone. There's no one who doesn't suffer and go through a lot. That's where I came up with the metaphor of we're all carrying an invisible bag of cement on our shoulders. And if you don't see it, it's only because you don't know the people. What I want to mention is uh, this problem of that honoring my own grief while recognizing that I'm not the only one this ever happened to. I tried to solve this problem with a kind of light motif or chorus in the book. There are a series of poems about other poets who've lost children. And this is a kind of recurrent motif. It's in the same form as the other poems. But throughout the book, at different ages that Gabriel is, it mentions other people, poets, not anyone I knew personally in the history of poetry who lost children and how they responded from Ben Jonson in the Renaissance to Mallarmé in the 19th century and so forth, to Issa in Japan and various other poets. I couldn't write about all the people who've lost children, but I decided that I would call on my people, other poets, to see how they'd handled their grief and what they'd done and how they tried to manage it. And that was my way of gesturing towards the fact that this has not happened to me alone. There are many other people who this has happened to, and ultimately something catastrophic happens to everyone. And it's really a question of how they handle it and what they do. My people are poets, and so they turn to poetry. That's how they manage, but we all have to find our ways. What was your relationship with grief after the writing of the book? Would you say that it was a helpful tool for you in the process? on this path? Time does its work on you, even if you don't want it to. Sometimes you don't want it to. This was my way of saying Kaddish. It gave me something to do every day with my grief. I don't believe in the five stages of grief. I think it's crude as an idea, but grief does go through different stages in your life as you move through time. I don't know if it was the process of writing Gabriel the process of thinking about Gabriel, the process of returning to my own life, the process of a year passing and then two years passing and three years passing, but the load gets a little lighter. You have to make a decision as an adult. You don't know how to make this decision as a child. I know, now know many, many people who've lost children because Gabriel found its way to a community of grief-stricken people. 
No one is the same after they've lost a child. Some people can't recover at all. And you really have to decide whether you want to return to life or not, or whether you want to stay in the burial ground, metaphorically speaking. I don't blame people who can't get out of the burial ground. I decided that I wanted to live and that I would keep Gabriel with me and I would keep him alive and it would be a tremendous part of me, but I wasn't going to just die right then. And I think that the process of writing my poem helped me. The advantage of writing a poem was it's like psychoanalysis. You go where it's painful. And it enabled me to work through certain things. My poem, as you know, is very unsentimental. The death of a child is one of the most sentimental subjects in, in poetry. The 19th century American poetry is filled with, because child mortality rates were so high, it was quite common for people to lose children at one point. People wrote a tremendous number of sentimental poems. I don't blame people for writing them, but they, they make me a little sick. I decided that I was either going to be ruthless because there's something a little cold about writing poetry. And I was going to face it and try and write things that were going to be difficult, things that Gabriel wouldn't want me to put in a poem, things that other people didn't like that I wrote down because they considered it a violation. Either I was going to be able to do that and face it, or I wasn't. And I decided that I had it in me and it was worth it. It's a bit unrelenting that way. Do you go back and pick up the book and read it from time to time? I do not. I mean, I give poetry readings, and for a long time I didn't read out of Gabriel. Mm -hmm. For the first year, I tried not to read out of it. But everywhere I went, people had come to hear me read from it, and many people had lost children. And finally, I just decided that I should. I give poetry readings out of it. I know the book very well, but I can't say that I reread my own work very much. It doesn't seem healthy to me. I've read and reread the book several times because of the imagery and the visualization for me. I, I felt that I really owed it to myself to revisit it. Of course, working in a funeral chapel, I was very struck by the imagery that took place. You stated that, quote, the music of death is solemn. Please, if you would, talk about how ritual played a role in your life or plays a role in your life now. Because when it came to Gabriel, he had a traditional burial. He had a watcher, a shomer. Did the framing of ritual provide a roadmap for you in that time? This is a bit fraught as a subject, maybe more than you might have imagined. I mean, I do think we need rituals of grief. During COVID, we saw how brutal it was when people were not, would not go through funerals. But I did not agree with everything that happened around Gabriel's funeral. I had to negotiate everything with my ex-wife. I'd say we were both trying to console ourselves. And I was consoling myself by doing things that I thought Gabriel would have liked. My ex-wife, Janet, was trying to console herself by doing things that were traditionally Jewish. Gabriel didn't like those things, and so I was opposed to them. But I compromised, and that someone sitting with Gabriel all night and saying prayers was a compromise. I decided it wouldn't be harmful. But did it console me? Absolutely not. I thought Gabriel would not have liked it. But you need rituals. And so the, just the question is, how traditional should they be? 
and I think people find comfort in the traditions. I do not. And so I can't say that I found this comforting myself. What I found comforting is that Gabriel was wearing the blue suit that he really loved. While I so appreciate your honesty, I think this is a conversation that takes place often with families in terms of what feels right, what doesn't feel right, how the ritual plays into the moment. And for some, it speaks volumes. And for others, it doesn't resonate at all in that moment. Well, as you know, we have a continuum from Reform to Orthodox Jews. It's very related to how you were raised. Yep. It's related partially to what you believe, but I think even more it's related to how you were raised and what gives you comfort and in terms of what feels familiar to you because death is tremendously unsettling. It's the most unsettling thing that can happen. And I believe the community coming together is tremendously important to bring you into the community so that you don't die with the person who died. And I think all of these rituals are there to support and suggest that you belong, you are part of something. And the rituals of this are a way of suggesting that you're part of a people. When you're burying someone who didn't like all that stuff, who opposed it, who didn't find comfort in it at all, but just found it constrictive, it becomes a little more complicated. You're doing things that the person didn't like to make yourself feel better. I mean, obviously there's some people who just follow the rules. They're believers and they live their life according to whatever religion they believe in, Judaism of whatever sort, and they just do what's expected. And I have many relatives who are like that. And my ex-wife, Janet, came from an Orthodox family, so she really has a lot of relatives who do that. Well, very often we find that the funeral is very much for the living. Sometimes those voices carry through to what the deceased would have wanted, and we hope those conversations happen. But in tragic moments like this, those conversations don't always take place. So there you were in that moment. Everyone has a different idea about what a funeral should look like. We had a rabbi who was quite good, but I I asked him to speak as minimally as possible. Basically, Janet and I and Gabriel's best friend gave eulogies. The rabbi did perform some necessary prayers that were really helpful and was very extremely sensitive. But I asked him not to give a full eulogy. In my family, there's a strong feeling that a eulogy from someone who did not know the person who died is not valuable and is a kind of mockery. Mm-hmm. And so it's one thing if the rabbi really knows the person who died. That's great. But if the rabbi doesn't, I think the rabbi should do whatever she does or whatever he does around the prayers, but not pretend to have known the person. I can't bear those eulogies where they start talking about the person's love of God and you happen to know that they didn't love God at all and whatever. I I just can't take it. Two sections of my book are the eulogy, which I remembered word for word that Gabriel's best friend gave, which was the story of what he did on his 22nd birthday. And to me, that was just a tremendous, I didn't know, neither did Janet. It was a tremendously moving, great eulogy because it captured what Gabriel was like. And I think that's what you want. But I agree with you, the rituals of closure are important. Death is sacred. It's not a joke. The way our culture is so uncomfortable with death and so uncomfortable with grief doesn't help people. It makes them go underground with their grief because it becomes something they're ashamed of. 
and I think a solid service the way you're doing for people, which give them a place to ritualize death, is tremendously meaningful. Well, I really appreciate you talking about the sense of community and the importance of community, because in these moments, we've seen it and we hear about how important it is to have the community around you. And as you stated earlier, so that one doesn't die along with those they bury. And I think that that speaks volumes. I want to talk a little bit about your grandfather. This was a person who you were very close to. You lost relatively early in your life, but he was an influence uh, leading you to poetry and your life's work. Will you talk about that a little bit? Yes. I adored my grandfather. His name was Oscar Ginsberg. Beautiful. He was from Latvia. He is a Latvian Jew. He died when I was eight years old. My mother and father separated when I was two years old. Anyway, they got divorced soon afterwards. My grandparents thought that divorce was a Shonda. They wouldn't come and live with us. But my mother went to work, and so my grandmother came and stayed with us, came and took care of us every day in Chicago. And then my grandfather babysat for us. When my grandmother went to play cards, my grandfather came and babysat for us. <laughs> he liked poetry. He wrote poems in the backs of his books. We don't really know what they were, but he was writing poems in there. And he could hear him sort of whispering to himself and doing stuff. We didn't really pay much attention to it. When he died, I went down to the basement of my house and I found a poem. I opened an anthology. The anthology didn't have the names of poets attached to the poems. They were in the back, but I didn't see them. And I read a poem called Spellbound. I was sure my grandfather had written it, and I thought he was trying to send me a message. But when I was in high school, I was a freshman in high school, I opened a textbook and I go, hold it a second. Here's grandpa's poem. <laughs> it was written by Emily Bronte. <laughs> it wasn't my grandfather's poem. It wasn't my grandfather's poem at all. So when I was in high school, I began to write poetry. I asked my mom and my aunt and my grandmother about my grandfather's poems, and no one knew anything about them. My grandfather had written them in his books, and after he died, my grandmother gave all his books away. They were all assigned to him. His writing poetry was an indication to all of them that he couldn't adapt to the new world. He wasn't a practical person, which he was not. He used to sell ads for Der Tag in the Midwest. He was a Yiddish speaker, but then he had a heart attack. He got dropped by Der Tog. He went to work selling shirts on Maxwell Street, and he was very unhappy. Then he died of a heart attack. But the idea that you could write poetry and that you could have a kind of interior life that was meaningful to you, different than the external American life that we had all around us, where everyone's trying to sell everything to everyone all the time struck me. And it's possible that when I was writing poetry, I tried to imagine what his poems would be like, because no one knew whether they were in Hebrew, in Yiddish, or in English. I asked my grandmother what they were about, and she said, well, maybe they were, I think they were about Zionism. Well, maybe they were socialism. Fascinating. They just didn't know. But the idea that you could be a person who cared about books, 
and write poems just registered with me in the back of my head and has stayed with me for my entire life. Beautiful. My grandfather used to take me to a Yiddish bookstore that he hung out in called Moshe Shashinsky's bookstore on Lawrence Avenue. Is that in Chicago? Yeah, it's in Chicago. And he met all his cronies there. They didn't have any interest in sports. They liked debating. I remember some of the debates. One that was really funny was about Genesis 1 and 2, because mankind gets created twice, and they all had opinions. But I like the guy who said, I don't see what all the fuss is about. The second time wasn't any better than the first. <laughs> <laughs> Those must have been great conversations, right? Yeah, they were, yeah, they were intense. And I did ask my grandfather what, what he liked about the bookstore. The books were dusty and no one bought them. And they were in languages I couldn't understand. He said, this is my other family. That really stuck with me, yeah. that you could create another family, not your original family. And literature has been like that for me, that I've created another community of people. Not Some are alive, but many are not. I don't distinguish of people who have created a community for me because they wrote poetry and left behind what they wrote. That's been meaningful to me. And so powerful. I'm curious to know, has your voice as a poet changed since the death of Gabriel? Definitely. Gabriel was so irreverent that I had to adapt the way I wrote poetry. I wrote in a higher idiom, I would say, before Gabriel. But Gabriel, that just wasn't going to work. And so I really adapted to a tougher vernacular, more street, I'd say, uh, more contemporary for sure. That stayed with me even when I'm not writing, even when I was not writing about Gabriel. At the beginning of the 20th century, WBH said that everyone got down off their stilts. I think writing Gabriel helped me get down off my stilts and write more street level. Doing that makes you more American, not less American. I want to talk about the article that you wrote several months ago for the New York Times describing your gradual loss of sight. You characterize navigating through the challenges and this reality as, quote, strangely exhilarating. And I'd really like you to talk about that. It was not at first because I was in denial. And the piece that I wrote in the Times was about my gradual acceptance of the fact that I'm going blind. And at first I was in denial and I was quite miserable about it and I was having a lot of troubles, I'd say. I was bumping into people and I was bumping into things and it was a very unhappy experience. Once I began to get help that I needed and I began to navigate the challenges of it, I began to see, well, let's see what this can do. So I began to use a cane and I had mm -hmm. a cane coach and I had many entertaining adventures with her. And I began to see that my whole experience with people in the world began to be different. When you're dawdling in line or when you're walking into things or when you're tripping, people don't know how to interpret it. And they're quite cruel in the city. When you have a cane, they know how to interpret what they're seeing. They now know you're blind. You bring out the kindness in people and their better natures. And then on top of it, and I think this is very Jewish myself. No one thinks that a blind person has a sense of humor. They don't expect you to make jokes. So my jokes are really landing. And so I began to find such funny encounters with people around my blindness, which I hadn't had before. And as I began to see it as a challenge, I'm not saying it's all fun and games. It's not. 
To me, the, one of the most important lines in my piece is, I decided to choose curiosity over despair. Most people with disabilities choose despair over curiosity. I can't blame them, but I felt differently about it. And once I began to see, instead of despairing, I began to be curious about my state and how to manage it and what to do, I began to find it quite invigorating and really very interesting. And so that's where I found the exhilaration. The exhilaration particularly comes from when I went blindfolded at night with my cane coach walking from Grand Central to Union Square at Christmas time. Really crazy. I mean, it, there was a lot of action. There were a lot of pop-up stores. I was just bumping into things and using my cane, and I was really killing it. It was really funny. So I saw it as a kind of game. And then when we ended it, we went down in the subway, and a train was coming. I go, let's run. I took my cane coach, and we ran onto the subway. And then she said, I'm going to have to lower your grade. I got to lower your grade for that because you're not supposed to run onto the subway when you're... You're failing in going blind and your cane coach. She's also going, I'm not going to let you jaywalk. We're not jaywalking with the cane. Because I began to see it as a challenge rather than just a tragedy. I mean, look, I'd rather have my sight. But given the way that, that it's gone, my piece resonated with people because it's positive. It's not just despairing. It's, well, what are we going to do with this now? I think also what it does is it lets the reader know they don't have to be so uncomfortable when they see someone who has a cane or who's having difficulty crossing the street. It's not scary to deal with that person. They're real people. There's a stigma to all kinds of things with people with disabilities yeah. that people are scared of you. I don't see why it's so scary. My sister, who is also going blind, thinks it's kind of funny because sometimes when we're talking on the phone, I, I start showing cane solidarity with someone else on the street going, <laughs> like your technique. Have you thought about really writing about the loss of sight? Has that played into your thinking at all? My piece had a tremendous response. I've been taking some notes. I've been writing a different book instead right now i've been writing a book about my childhood i haven't been writing about going blind but i have been taking notes on my adventures about going blind and the comical encounters i have with people especially my friends who say that people think that they're good samaritans because they're with a blind guy <laughs> so I, I might write something i don't have a plan at the moment Okay, well, I will just throw my hat into the ring and simply say that I hope you do write something because there are all different types of losses in this life. And you are such a gift in terms of your writing that I think people would truly listen and learn from your words. So I, for one, hope that you write something. Thank you for saying so. I, I mean, I should point out that the turning point in my piece was the, when I got help from Lighthouse Guild and all of the people that helped me, my cane coach, my cooking coach, people who really gave my computer help coach, all the people who helped me navigate the world really have made a tremendous difference in my life. And that accepting that you need help, admitting that you need help, is one thing, and then getting the help. And Lighthouse was really a, a savior for me in terms of this. And we'll be sure to let them know that they were mentioned in this podcast for sure. We'll put them in the show notes. Edward Hirsch, thank you from the bottom of my heart 
for sharing Gabriel with us. Thanks for your great sensitivity and thoughtfulness and understanding of grief and your willingness to think about it and what it means. Before I let you go, I want to bring into our conversation Livia Thompson, who you know. Livia Thompson is the executive director of Jewish Braille International. So, Livia, before we let Ed go, you have a moment with Edward. Hi, Livia. Ed and Stephanie, that was an incredibly touching and moving conversation. So, thank you. I also want to thank you, Ed, because you and I did talk before and you shared with me your book of poetry, Stranger by Night which JBI has now recorded and made available to our patrons as part of our emerging role in providing poetry to individuals who are blind, print disabled, or low vision. My thanks for doing that, and we're very excited that we can increase the ability of anyone who wants to listen to poetry. So thank you. It's a tremendous service, so I'm very grateful to you. More of that to come. We're very excited, and we will be starting a poetry series later because everyone should have access to music. Everyone should have access to poetry, and that is part of our mission. Again, my thanks. I want to once again thank both of you. And for our listeners, a little bonus. I continued speaking with Livia Thompson of JBI about the tremendous work it's doing serving individuals who are blind, print disabled, or low vision. And you can find that conversation on an Exit Strategy bonus episode in your podcast feed. As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation about this end-of-life issue. I urge you to visit our show notes and there's an email listed there. So if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you listen to your podcasts each month, we'll renew our conversation with another topic. And I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary, and this is Exit Strategy.